Good afternoon, everybody. Happy New Year. Welcome back for those of you I haven't had a chance to see in the halls. Uh, it's my pleasure today to welcome you all to the first Legal Legends series of presentations here at Mercer Law School. This is going to be a series of presentations where we are going to invite some of the very best lawyers that we know to come and address you, our students, so that you will have a chance to hear directly from these lawyers on matters related to their careers, to their legal expertise, and to their perspectives on a whole host of topics in ways that we believe will help you learn how to also be the very best at whatever you hope to do in the future. I could think of no one better, no practitioner, no alumnus better than to start our Legal Legends series than Lynn Wood. Now before I introduce Lynn Wood to you, uh, he is a double bear, by the way, earning both his bachelor's degree and law degree from Mercer University. I want to welcome back to the law school and introduce to you his daughter, Ashley Wood. Ashley? Yes. Ashley is a 2012 graduate of the law school. She has spent her entire career to date fighting for the rights of indigent and marginalized communities as a public defender. She began her career right after graduation with the Brunswick Public Defender's Office and is now a public defender with the DeKalb County Public Defender's Office. In her free time, she is coaching the mock trial team at Decatur High School. She spends time with her family, friends, and her chihuahua named Gemma. So Ashley, we're really glad to have you back today. Lynn Wood was born in North Carolina, and while, as you will see from Lynn, he may look like a polished lawyer with all the advantages in life, he had a hard childhood. He was raised in a home with serious domestic abuse. He made his way to Mercer University and Mercer Law School and worked his way through both with scholarships and part-time jobs. He was hired out of law school with a local Macon firm and ended up spending most of his first 20 years of practice with that firm and others doing a lot of medical malpractice work. Then a client named Richard Jewell was referred to him in 1996, and as Lynn has been quoted as saying, Richard Jewell changed his life, changed his life personally, changed his career and his practice. As many of you know, Richard Jewell was tagged in 1996 as the Olympic Park bomber, and media reports of his involvement in the bombing went viral. A movie about his life has just been released. Some of you have probably seen it, and you might want to ask Mr. Wood about that later, and he wants you to ask questions today, so be thinking about that. But after successfully defending Mr. Jewell and clearing his name in that incident, Lynn Wood's reputation was sealed as a strong defamation lawyer and his practice moved dramatically into high profile First Amendment, defamation, and reputation protection types of cases. He has represented Patsy and John Ramsey and their son in the John Bonet Ramsey murder case matters, former Congressman Gary Condit in defamation matters related to the abduction and murder of his former aide Chandra Levy, the accuser in the Kobe Bryant rape case, 
Most recently, Vernon Unsworth, a respected cave diver who rescued and was instrumental in the rescue of the young boys who were trapped in the Thailand cave case in litigation out in California just in December against Elon Musk, and a student, Nick Sandman, in the defamation case matters uh, connected to the incident last January on the steps of Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C., for which the news just reported a settlement with CNN. I even hired Lynn Wood when I was Secretary of State to defend me against a professional trade organization that didn't like some of the actions I took as Secretary of State and they were defaming me in their newsletter. So I went for the best I could find and hired Lynn Wood. But there are many, many more cases that have earned Lynn Wood a reputation as one of the nation's most premier defamation lawyers or as CBS's Dan Rather has called him, the attorney for the damned. A reporter also wrote of him in a 2016 Super Lawyers feature, he is the go-to guy when your reputation has been ravaged, an aggressive lawyer who can make the media eat its words. While some of Linwood's opposing counsel have criticized his techniques, Robert Richards, the co-founder of the Center for First Amendment at Penn State University said this, and I quote, what he's done has helped the media strive for higher standards and let them know in no uncertain terms that if they deviate from what should be a fair and reasonable practice of journalism, that he will go after them with great zeal. Today, I am delighted to turn the Lynn Wood courtroom over to Lynn Wood, but I wanted to give you one more piece of information about Lynn. He did not ask for this or any other courtroom to be named for him at Mercer Law School. Lynn decided a few years back that he wanted to make a major gift to his alma mater here at the law school while Daisy Floyd was our dean. He put no strings on his gift. He told Dean Floyd, use it for whatever you need the most. And he gave us a million dollars. He didn't ask for any recognition or naming rights. But nevertheless, Dean Floyd and President Bill Underwood decided that something of significance really should bear Lynn Wood's name. So they built out this courtroom in 2016 and named it and dedicated it to Lynn Wood. We are in the process of developing an exhibit that will hang on the wall right outside the courtroom that should be up in the next month or two. It will feature some of the notable cases that Lynn has handled and illustrate the impact that he has had on the law, the media, and our profession. Because we want you and future generations of Mercer Law students to know just what a legal legend Lynn Wood is. So with that, please join me in welcoming back to Mercer Law School, Lynn Wood. Thank you, uh, Dean Cox. You flatter me. I won't try to go through and analyze it like I do media reports to tell everybody what's absolutely true and what might be a little shaded and what might not be totally accurate. I'll just accept those words for the moment as true. So it's uh, afternoon. Good afternoon. Uh, and thanks for uh, attending. I was asked to 
Well, you know what? I, I made y'all a promise before we started about the telephone, my cell phone, when I told you I was going to tell you a quick story, so let me do that because I like to keep my word. I had the privilege of having a case uh, in front of Judge Charles Pennell, who I think is one of the best federal judges in the United States. And it was a tough case. And I had to take some tough positions. And luckily, I was in front of a tough judge. And really, luckily, he agreed with me. <laughs> Charles Pannell, Judge Pannell spoke. People listened. And the first thing he said when we went into, I think it was a three or four day, in effect, a non-jury trial on a serious matter of sanctions against the defendant and their lawyers. Pennell said, I want everybody to turn their phone off in my courtroom. And if you don't and it goes off, I'm going to deal with you. Everybody turned their phone off. I sure did. And it was the second day, late in the afternoon, and all of a sudden, in the courtroom, a cell phone went off. Even though I knew I had turned my phone off and felt relatively confident that the other lawyers around me had turned theirs off. I panicked. <laughs> so did everybody else. When Judge Pinnell, well, he reached under the bench and he said, that's my phone. <laughs> Relax. My mother's 94 years old and I, she calls me every afternoon. I take her calls. Well, <laughs> we, we breathe a sigh of relief. I, uh, I'm not sure that I'm worthy of the praise from Dean Cox, but I do appreciate it. I didn't come here to be praised. I didn't even know I was going to be called a legend until someone else <laughs> sent that to me yesterday, and a legend. And then I found out today that I'm the first legend. <laughs> and then... I'm hearing Dean Cox say, you know, we got him here first because he's, you know, the first one you'd want to hear from. And I thought to myself, now, am I here because I'm first and I'm that good, the first legend? Or am I just here because they want to get me out of the way for all the other legends to go? So <laughs> we'll see. You can determine that. I hope you'll hear all of the legends when they come to speak with you. Because they, like me, are going to be telling you about their law practice. They're going to be giving you their truth about what the practice of law has either meant to them or what they've experienced in it. And that's the most important lessons that you can listen to when you're still a law student. Because those are the things that you have to hear for you to determine what lessons you have learned. And it's your choice. I could sit here and tell you in detail my 43 years, and there's a lot of teaching I could do. The question is, what will you learn from it? I hope you learned something from me today. I'm here because I love the practice of law. And I'm proud to be a lawyer. And I'm here today because I love Mercer University. Because it gave me the opportunity to go to undergraduate school. And it gave me the opportunity to go to law school to practice the profession I love. So I love Mercer and I'm proud to be a Mercer Bear. 
when I go up in New York or California and I'm doing battle with these Harvard and Yale lawyers, and somebody looks over at me and says, where'd you go to law school? And I said, I went to Mercer University, the Harvard of the South. <laughs> one of them quick-wittedly one time looked over and said, yeah, you, you mean the Harvard of Bibb County? I said, yes, exactly, the Harvard <laughs> of Bibb County. It's really, the truth to me is raw. So you know, I can't, in the courtroom you try to hide it. Sometimes when you're not in the courtroom because truth is raw, you lived it, you might see a little bit of an emotion from me. Please forgive me. I'm also here today because I love my daughter. And I'm proud of her too. And I'm so proud that she's a lawyer, that she decided to practice the profession that her father loved. And she practiced it for people just like I practiced it for 43 years. She practices because people need her. We're not lawyers because we want to be. If we are professionals, which we are required to be, we choose to practice law so we can serve other people because they need us. And we decided when we went through the turmoils and all the late nights and the sometimes two weeks, it seemed like no sleep before an exam, we made that, and you're making that commitment, and you're sacrificing yourself physically and mentally because you want to help somebody in the role of a lawyer no matter what the cost to you. You're not going into business. You're going into a profession where the best interest of your client dictate everything you do. You don't do it for money. You don't do it to have your name on the courtroom. It's not about fame and fortune. It's about what is in the best interest of your client. That's professionalism. If it's about money, it's a business. If it's about a fame, you're in the wrong business. Get that in Hollywood. I haven't seen the Richard Jewell movie. I'm not portrayed in it. Watson Bryant, who was the lawyer that introduced me and asked me to help him two weeks after the bombing, and I met Richard and I decided to help him, not because I thought I could be on TV, and that one day there might be a movie, I decided to help Richard Jewell for the same reason I decided to help Vernon Unsworth and Nicholas Sandman and a host of others. Because when I met with him, I felt that he had a good soul, and he was a good man, and he needed help. And I said, I'll give it to you, Richard. And yes, Dean Cox, you're right. Richard Jewell changed my life, personally and professionally. The only thing that you were wrong about is that I didn't work for some big firm for 20 years. In 1983, six years out of school, I started my own law firm. Everybody laughed at me. I'd come up from Macon, Jones Court uh, Miller, three years, three years at Freeman and Hawkins, now Hawkins and Parnell. 
And I thought at six years, I'd seen enough and I felt enough and I knew enough and I said, I'd rather do this my way. So I started my own law firm and with a brief time in 2006 to 2011, when I went over to Powell Goldstein, now Brian Cave, uh, I have always had my own law firm. I left there and restarted my law firm, not because I wanted to, but because I felt strongly about two men named Alon Vayner and Daniel Barbier. And Brian Cave, for reasons that were theirs to make, and I don't dispute them, back now I look back and I'm kind of glad they did. They didn't take their case, and I left the firm to take their case. Four years later, after I'd pretty much gone through all my savings to start up my law firm again, where I was going to be spending all of my time working for Alon and Daniel in front of Charlie Pannell, Judge Pannell, if he's listening. <laughs> Four years later, when I was sitting around thinking, well, I got enough money to live on for six months, and I think I got enough money to live and keep my firm going for six more months, I settled that case for $495 million. It's a whistleblower case. I didn't get a third of that. And I'll tell you exactly how much I got out. I got enough. <laughs> I didn't get too much. And thank goodness I didn't get too little. I got enough. I got enough to keep practicing law, to be able to help my law partners, to help my family, to help some people that I cared about, sometimes even to help strangers, but enough to help my law school. Enough is always enough. Just depends on how you view it. Now, this is the part of my remarks where maybe it won't be as raw, and I won't have to sit here and wipe my nose and feel a little bit embarrassed, but I told you the truth that it might happen, so, you know, that's what you're going to hear from me today. Because my entire career, 43 years, in any situation, in front of any judge, in front of any lawyer, in front of any client, and in front of any audience, whether it's on the Larry King show or the Today show, or, or whether it's an audience of my soon-to-be fellow lawyers, I've always told the truth. I've never tried to misrepresent it. I've never tried to change it because you cannot change truth. Truth is incontrovertible. It does not change. This is the part you're going to like because this is the part I always like. And I'm not talking about the president, but I think he does it. Most speakers in front of an audience do. Sometimes they have a notebook in front of them. Manley Brown would shoot me. If y'all know who Manley Brown is, please get to know his legacy at this school. Manley Brown, Manley F. Brown is a true legend of Mercer. I don't have the time to tell you my personal story about Manley Brown, but he came to my help when I needed him at age 16. And I never forgot it. He taught me, you know, when you speak and when you're in a jury 
trial, you've got a notebook in front of you and you got everything typed up and you've got it all organized and that's what you do. He taught me trial advocacy. I made the best grade, the highest grade in his class. I'm not ashamed to tell you that because I'm proud of it. I didn't necessarily follow Manley's advice. I try, it seems like in life, most of my cases off of a legal path. The one thing he said never do. But here's what you like, is when somebody reaches in their pocket and they pull out their notes. And why do you like it? Because you know that at least they know what they want to say, and because it's relatively brief, you're not going to have to listen to much of it. And hopefully they'll stay on task. Sometimes the president doesn't. He's not unlike other presidents. Sometimes we speak extemporaneously when the, when the spirit inside of us moves us to say something other than what we plan. Now here's where Manley is. I'm glad Manley's not here. I hope he's not watching because I'm going to visually insult him. I don't mean to. I didn't type it up. I didn't put it in a notebook. I wrote it down on a legal pad and it looks like a mess. It is on paper, I hope it is not a mess in my mind. But just to be sure, I condensed it. <laughs> this is what I did on the hour and a half drive from uh, Atlanta. Forgive me, Manly Brown, while I may not have followed your specific instructions on how to prepare for an audience, I never forgot what you taught me as a lawyer. When I was 16 years old, Manly Brown told me what it meant to be a lawyer, and I never forgot. And that's a lesson he told me that I learned and I have followed. While I didn't follow this one, Manly, I sure followed the other one. I'm here to, to, to do what I try to do, and I think if you stop and think about it, we all do. I'm here to have a conversation with you. Because I think life, for my, here it goes, 67 years, has taught me that life is, is a series of conversations. The practice of law is a series of conversations. You'll have conversations with, about cases, which means you'll have conversations with clients. You'll have conversations with other lawyers. You'll have conversations with judges. You'll have conversations in hearings. You'll have conversations in motion practice. When you write a brief, what are you really doing? You're doing what I'm trying to do today. You're going to be assigned a topic. Dean Cox assigned this topic to me, professionalism. You get a brief to write, you're writing down a conversation. The other side will respond. The court will look at both conversations and the court will decide. Not necessarily what you want, but what the court in that instance and the court only has the right to do. Make the decision on what to do and how to feel about your conversation with the court, which is the truth of your feelings about the law on that issue. The judge will decide what to do with your truth. 
just like everybody around you will decide what they think about you to the extent they know the truth or some portion of the truth of your life. Now, we know a trial is a conversation. It kind of brings everybody together in the same room. Brings in the clients, brings in the lawyers for working with you and working against you. Certainly brings in the judge who will tell you when to turn your phone on and off. And it brings in 12 strangers. 12, sometimes 6, sometimes 8. But they come into that room as strangers, just like you essentially might know a little bit about me from what you've read. You do not know me because you do not know the truth of my life and the truth of my practice until I decide how much of the truth of my life and my practice I want to share with you. Then you'll get to know me. Until then, you're essentially a stranger. You to me and me to you. So without ever really realizing it, you go through life having conversations with strangers. Be careful with the words that you choose. Be careful the way you act. Because your conversation is a form of communication and you communicate not only by what you say, but how you say it. Now trust me, to the extent you do, that's professionalism. The words you choose, how you say them, sometimes by the words themselves and sometimes when you spontaneously and you can't help yourself because that's just the way you were made by God, you to use your arms and you, you raise your voice up and down. That's just a way of expressing information and words. It should be spontaneous. Because spontaneous expression by word or act must nonetheless, and perhaps by virtue of being spontaneous, it becomes what it's supposed to be, the truth. The truth. If there is any one rule of professionalism that you will not forget, if I had my way, and if I could be in the role of Judge Pinnell and say to you, don't you forget this, don't you turn on your phone, I'd want you to remember this rule from whatever I say today and however long I say it, and I hope not too long because I want to have a conversation with you, and that means I want to hear from you too. Conversations to have meaning have got to be two, two ways. Or you can have a conversation with yourself. If I wanted to have a conversation myself, I would have gotten in the shower today and I would have stayed for 30 or 40 minutes and I would have said everything to myself that I was going to say to y'all. I'd had a conversation with myself. Remember, life is a series of conversations. But I would not have had a meaningful conversation because a meaningful conversation requires more than one.
When do you have them? When do you have those conversations? When, where, who, how? There's a list. I got it right here. It's on the, it's on the, I guess I have to say it as a lawyer, it's on the cheat sheet. When, what must they contain? How long? Why? What's the purpose? What's the topic? Who? Those are the questions that you have to address as a lawyer when you have conversations. Now I'm going to go back to where I almost went, but I didn't get to, but I'm going to get there. And here's what you got to remember. The answers to these questions, the when, the where's, the how, the what's, why? They can only be answered with one rule that you can never forget. They have to be answered honestly. They have to be answered with the truth as you in your life have decided it to be. Because there is no value, none whatsoever, in a false conversation. No value exists now, no value exists ever if it's a false conversation. As a lawyer, you're going to want to have an informed conversation too because there's not a lot of value to a misinformed conversation. If I'm sitting around with somebody that I've decided doesn't have a clue about the topic that we're talking about, I need to stop the conversation and exit it. Because there's no way if I'm sitting there talking to somebody that doesn't know what they're talking about, and I've realized that, I can't have an informed conversation. I can listen to myself talk, and I can listen to the other person talk, but we're not going to be informing each other. I'm certainly not going to get any information from that person because he doesn't or she doesn't know what they're talking about. I'm going to end that conversation respectfully at a fair time, as soon as possible, and I'm going to go have a conversation with somebody that is informed. Because those are the conversations you want to have. So when you look over and say, well, tell me, Lynn, and y'all can call me Lynn if you want to. Uh, you, you, only one person here can call me Dad. <laughs> you can call me Lynn, too, honey, if you want to. I love you. You can call me whatever you want to. I'm still going to love you. <laughs> and that's the truth. You're going to have conversations as a lawyer primarily first with your clients. Sometimes even your prospective clients. They're still your clients. Attorney-client privilege in a relationship exists from the days you sit down and talk to a person who's thinking about hiring you. You are their attorney in terms of the law. You have the relationship and you have the duty and absolute duty to keep those conversations confidential even before they formally hire you. So you're going to have conversations with clients. I've never gone out and, when I started practicing law, this will date me, if I haven't already dated myself, by the truth, I've been practicing 43 years, that's 1977, lawyers didn't advertise. You didn't see a lawyer on a billboard. You didn't see a lawyer on a bus. In 1983, when I started my first law firm, one of the biggest, toughest questions we had to ask, and y'all may not even know about the phone book, <laughs> but it had a yellow page and a white page. The white page was everybody. The yellow pages, and they were yellow, 
they would identify people's phone numbers by category or classification. So if you wanted to go to an attorney, you could go to the Yellow Pages. We had to debate whether or not you had to pay to be in the Yellow Pages. You didn't have to pay to get the White Pages. We had to debate whether or not to pay, I don't know what it was, five or ten dollars more, maybe a month, and whether we wanted to be in the Yellow Pages. After a few years, I think I finally said yes, but it was after a long debate with my then law partner that we had to make the other tough decision. Whether in the white pages that were free, where you'd see everybody's name and their phone numbers, did we want our name because we were a business and business were allowed to do so to be in bold? You remember those days, don't you, Mark? I just dated you. We did, in my mind, but you didn't know it. How about that? I decided at that time that I thought it was okay. I looked over and I saw where King and Spalding and all the other big firms, Austin and Bird, they were Austin, Miller, and Gaines at the time, and it was Jones, Bird, and Howell. I think that's the firms that merged into Austin and Bird. They did it, and I thought, well, if they're doing it, and I respect them as professionals, I'm okay with it. Put our firm name in bold, and we did. And then all of a sudden, after the Supreme Court ruling that allowed lawyers to do what they pleased within some regulation by the state bars under the precious right, I mean, the best, best of the best, the right of free speech, they said, lawyers, you can be free in your speech. And boy, have the lawyers ever been free in their speech since then. <laughs> I lost the Elon Musk case by verdict. I won the Elon Musk case in truth. That's a story for another day. My client is pleased. The lawyers that worked with me that learned and saw and experienced a major high-profile jury trial in a hostile jurisdiction. And let me tell you something. I mean hostile. A judge that did not miss many opportunities to berate me, to belittle me, to insult me. At one point, I thought, what did I do to this judge that I don't remember? Because I don't think I ever saw him before I got in this case. And he seemed to be pretty nice to me before we were in the presence of the ultimate finder of fact, the jury. And then I saw him do it to my law partners, young lawyers. Did it to my partner, Taylor Wilson, who's 31 years old, about to be 31, just had his first baby, born on Richard Jewell's birthday. I saw him do it to Jonathan Grunberg, who started practicing law a little bit later in life, but has really got about a few years only more experience than Taylor. Jonathan's in his mid-40s. Jonathan, if you're watching, I should have said early 40s, but that's okay. I'm trying to tell the truth. <laughs> I always do. Jonathan had two twins. I mean, had twins, two babies. Two years ago, 
born on Richard Jewell's birthday. One thing that I will urge to you as you approach life, as you approach the profession of law, there are no coincidences. None. Things don't happen by chance. They happen by design. Now I'm going to stop, interrupt myself. I'll come back until somebody yanks at me and tells me I'm not taking. I'm taking so much time that I'm, I'm not going to do what I really want to do and hear from y'all. Richard Jewell. I practiced law for Richard Jewell for 16 years. Five years after his death, I was still down in the courthouse fighting a battle that I knew I was probably never going to win, but I was not going to stop until. I wasn't going to turn the lights out for my client, even after he was dead, until I finished doing my, I swore to him I would do, and that would be to get truth and justice for him. I didn't get it from the AJC, and I know why. The courts made a terrible mistake when they deemed Richard Jewell a public figure plaintiff. He was not. I have to just ask one day when I'm confident I'll never be in front of any of those judges before, why did you do that? The Georgia Court of Appeals did it. The trial judge did it. Supreme Court of Georgia didn't have any interest in it. It was interlocutory. I couldn't convince the United States Supreme Court to hear it, but it was wrong. Richard Jewell was a private figure at the time this all happened. So I turned the lights out. I'd done all I could do. And remember, please, that all you can do as a professional is to do all you can do to the best of your ability to do it, even when you're tired, even when you want to go home and see your family, even when you want to just go to sleep, even when you just don't want to go see that judge who's so mean to you. <laughs> you do it anyway, because what's your priority as a professional? You do whatever it takes, first and foremost, that is in the best interest of your client. You put your own interest second. If you do not, you will not be a professional. You will just be a business person. Now, we're all imperfect. So sometimes you're going to make a decision that might cause some conflict between your life and your client, so you're not going to be perfect. That's why I said you got to do the best you can. That's all anybody can ask of you. That's all a client can ask of you, and that's all you can give a client. You can't give a client more than your very best. And you can't give that client less than your very best. A couple of months ago when the movie came out and I was unhappy with it, not because I wasn't in it, not because Lynn Wood's name doesn't show up, it's Watson Bryant, that's fine, Watson, Watson worked hard. I was the leader for 16 years of the Richard Jewell case. I came up with the strategy from two weeks after the bombing that led to the media strategy. I was making up trying a case in the court of public opinion for the first time. I'd never done it before, and I was making it up on the fly off the seat of my pants. And it was being done effectively because we were taken to the media, and what were we doing when we appeared? We were telling them the truth. The FBI didn't like to hear the truth. The media, excuse me, damn sure never really cares about the truth most of the time. And we took it to them. And then we decided, 
I decided they probably heard enough of the lawyers. We need to get we need to get attention because this man's getting ready to get charged and arrested for a crime he did not commit. The crime that if they found him guilty of would brand him a terrorist, subject to the federal penalty of death. And I said, let's try to get their attention on the day the Democratic uh, Convention opens up for the renomination as the candidate, President Bill Clinton. Let's tie something to, to President Clinton. Let's make a plea that the president will listen to. And I said, why don't we have a press conference? Never had one before. <laughs> didn't, even know, didn't even know how to get one. You, you end up, I got to tell you this, even if I go over a couple of minutes. Well, on a Friday afternoon, I said, let's have a press conference. And okay, well, who's going to talk? Well, the lawyers, I mean, you know, I, I, I do a pretty good job of communicating the truth. I knew that. I'm not a fool. If I was, I wouldn't be where I am today. Fools don't get called legends. And there are no <laughs> legends of fools. I said, how about Bobby Jewell? And I'll never forget Watson Bryan, who's kind of the co-star with Richard in the movie. He said, Lynn, you are a, starts with F, ends with G, genius. <laughs> and Bobby Jewell hated the cameras because she'd seen him in a parking lot. And they had paid to have a camera trained on her apartment where her son was staying with her while she recovered from surgery and he decided to work at the Olympics for the excitement of the experience. He had been a, and was a duly certified law enforcement officer in the state of Georgia. And he got a job as a security guard for a private company. His job was to protect the five-story light and sound tower, probably the most valuable piece of real estate in Centennial Olympic Park because it was where the VIPs went. Got to look after the VIPs. The real perceived legends and there were untold millions of dollars of equipment in there for audio and video. Got to protect the money. And Richard was assigned to do it. And he did. He did his job as best he could. And he was a hero. That was his truth. He was branded a killer. I asked Bobby Jewell, I said, Bobby, you sit down with Wayne Grant, who is a heck of a lawyer, was my early law partner at Wood, Moore and Grant, that became Wood and Grant. And I said, you work with Wayne, you all get along more, because look, Bobby's a soft-spoken lady. I'm not necessarily, don't you stand up and say amen, Ashley. I'm not necessarily a soft-spoken man. <laughs> You can say it. Amen, Dad. You're telling the I'm telling the truth, aren't I? I always do. <laughs> I said, I only want you to do one thing for me, Bobby. I want you to finish whatever remarks you and Wayne decide upon with a statement of saying, please, Mr. President, clear my son's name. I liked it because I liked Ronald Reagan's cadence when he looked over in front of the Berlin Wall and he said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Bobby couldn't do it. None of this is in the outline, sorry. 
She couldn't do it. Wayne worked with her all weekend, Friday afternoon press conference, which I, we set it up by going through the phone book, figuring out who to call is, is in the media. <laughs> We're going to have a press conference at a hotel. We used the phone book. There was no internet that was usable. At least not known, knowingly usable, because it was still in its early stages of development from being a government net to being a public net. And Bobby couldn't get through it. She couldn't get through 30 seconds of it. Wayne, competent and careful, great lawyer that he is, he was videoing it all. I think the videos were destroyed when Wayne's law office unfortunately caught on fire several years ago and they burned up. It's too bad because that would have been visual evidence of a truth that you would see and never forget. But here's what you saw. And the people that were there and the people that lived it. I see it right now like I'm sitting there beside her at this very moment because truth that you live is raw. You don't forget it because you lived it. Nobody told you about it. Nobody wrote about it. Nobody got up in front of you and told you about it. If you live it, it's real, and you know the truth, and it's raw. You could watch those videos, and 30 seconds in, she would put her head on the table, and she would sob. But it's too late. <laughs> We'd already set up the press conference. We'd all had gone through the white pages and the yellow pages, and we didn't know how many were going to be there, but we knew somebody was going to be there, and we, we couldn't do a no-show. So we showed up. Bobby had never gotten through her remarks. I looked at Bobby Jewell before she went on to the stage where we both walked in front of a mass of cameras and a mass of reporters like none of us had ever seen before. She had to be terrified because she hated a single camera that had been trained on her apartment. And I looked at Bobby Jewell and I said, Bobby, if you want to save your son's life, if you really want to save your son's life, this is the day that you can do it. But you've got to get through your remarks. You cannot break down. That's the last word she heard from any lawyer before she went into that room and she stood in front of her podium, in front of those cameras, and she gave her remarks. And I remember sitting there thinking, I wasn't listening to what she was saying. I just kept thinking, she's going to do it. She's going to do it. It's human drama at its incredible height. You're living the truth, and it's dramatic. It's always better than fiction. And she did it. She got to the point where she looked over into the cameras, and she said, Mr. President, clear my son's name. And she broke down. And she uttered the word, please. And we had to take her off. We had planned for her to ask, to answer questions. That clip of Bobby Jewell breaking down when she said, Mr. President, clear my son's name, please, was the lead clip that night on NBC, on ABC, on CBS, and on CNN. And somebody heard it. Somebody was listening to that conversation, and they were listening carefully. And I know her name. Her name was then Attorney General Janet Reno. 
She heard that mother's cry. She heard that mother's truth. And she told the Department of Justice, we got to fix this. We got the wrong man. And then after I decided to let Richard go out and tell his truth with Mike Wallace on 60 Minutes, Richard Jewell got a letter from the Justice Department to which he gave a beautiful speech. I wrote it for him. His words, but his voice, but primarily my words. How did I know what to say for Richard? If you watched it right now, you'd say, well, Richard Jewell is incredible. <laughs> how did he get so expressive? The real question is, how did I know what to tell him to say? Because I'd done my job. I had done my professional job. I had looked into Richard Jewell's mind, into Richard Jewell's soul, doing the best I could do to represent his best interest. And I knew what he wanted to say. I knew how he felt. So I knew the words he needed to use to express the truth, and he did. We could talk about the other high who, who's, where's, what's, and when's. How long does the conversation last? Just long enough. <laughs> not too long and not too short. And unless the court has a rule that gives you the length of time, if you're going to err, I told you this before after we started, didn't I? Err on the side of too much because you never want to say too little. In order for it to be an informed conversation with you as a lawyer, to be a professional, you got to know the law as best you can. You got to know the facts as best you can. And you got to prepare as, as best you can. <laughs> Please, not like Bobby Jewell, even though it's as raw as I said for me today as it was the day I sat beside her. In a courtroom, you got to be dignified. You got to try to control your raw emotions. Usually, it's easy because you're telling somebody else's story. You didn't live it. If you're telling your story, it's raw. It's hard to control your emotions because you know you're talking about the truth that you saw in front of you with your very eyes. can't control the outcome. This is a good sign. You can't control the outcome, folks. That sounds like Joe Biden. He says folks when anybody ever says. <laughs> you can't control the outcome. You can't control the jury verdict. You can't say the jury's going to say yes to Vernon Unsworth or yes to Elon Musk. A verdict is something you cannot control. A judge's ruling is something that you cannot control. How people deal with the truth of your life, how they judge you, if they judge you, they shouldn't, but they do. You can't control that. You can't control outcomes. You can only control the process that you have to put in to do your duty as best you can as a professional to know that no matter what the outcome, that you're able to go home the next day and look in the mirror if you're 
a male to shave or if you are a woman to make sure that you look the way you want to look before you present yourself to the world. Men do that too. And be able to say to yourself, didn't get the verdict. Didn't get what I believe justice required. Justice, by the way, is treating people fairly and respectfully. If you give that to them, the outcome of justice is irrelevant. Justice is a process. Just like your practice of law is a process. And when you look in the mirror and you say to yourself, I didn't win the verdict, but I did the process right. I feel good about myself. I did the best I could do. You will gleefully move on to the next conversation for the next client. Because you know you're a professional. You feel it. You live it. And you want to keep doing that profession to help others. Always look in the mirror. And know that you're a person that told the truth. You never lied about anything in your case, about your life. You faced it. The good and the bad and the ugly. Just like you'll have to face good and bad and ugly in every case you represent somebody. It ain't all perfect. There's only, only one perfection in this world. You will face it, you will embrace it, and you will live it. You'll get up the next day and you'll go do the next client. You'll take on the next cause. And now I'm going to remind you of one last thing. One more time. Not to turn off your cell phones, but to always, no matter what. There are no excuses. There are no justifications. There are no explanations. It cannot be anything but this. Always tell the truth. And I'm going to finish with one other thing. I'm going to ask you, if we have time, we may not. I hope we do. If not, I'll stay and talk to you individually because I want to hear from you. But when I thought in 2012 I turned the lights out on Richard Jewell, how many of y'all are on Twitter? Oh, don't spend too much time there. But it's an interesting place to have conversations. I spend too much time there, better too much than too little. And I do more since I've kind of decided to slow my practice down and focus more on Nicholas Salmon. And I want to write. And I want to talk to people and have conversations with people outside the arena of the professional law. We'll see how that works out. I was wrong in 2012. I didn't turn the lights out. I was the only lawyer left. I, all the other lawyers had left early on in the case when the money stopped coming in. And publicity stopped coming. I, I practiced law for Richard Jewell for probably the better part of the 16 years with the help of my other younger associates or partners by myself. 2012 when I lost the AJC case and Richard had been dead for five years, I was the only one there to turn the lights out. But here's what I realized a couple of three, four weeks ago. If that was the end and I turned the lights out, I was wrong. It was not the end of my duty to Richard Jewell. If I turned the lights out, I need to turn them back on, and I did. And I'm going to ask you to help me do this. 
I decided that I wanted to have the President of the United States, Donald J. Trump, whether you like him as a person or not, he represents the institution of the presidency of our country. He deserves that level of respect if he otherwise personally, you think, doesn't deserve more. I started trying to send the message to the President. As Richard's advocate, not for me to go to the White House one day or stand in front of the cameras with the President and Bobby Jewell and Dana, his wife, who was also ignored in the movie, because I want the President of the United States to award Richard Jewell the Presidential Medal of Freedom, which is the highest honor the President can bestow on a civilian of this country that did not serve in the military. He needs to do it. It's the right thing to do for the right person at the right time. This country needs to send the message clearly that you need to stand for what Richard Jewell stood for and what I've tried all my life to stand for. We need to stand up for truth and we need to stand up for justice where people are treated fairly and people are treated respectfully because we're all imperfect. We don't deserve more than that. And we don't deserve less. Even Donald J. Trump, with all of his flaws, does not deserve less. I want you to get on Twitter. If you're so inclined, I want you to send an email. I know one thing about President Trump. I've only seen him two occasions at a distance, years ago. Katie Couric's colorectal banquet at the Waldorf Astoria. When he came in, he lit up the room, and I happened to see him when I was sitting in the Trump Tower, and he happened to be in the hallway, and he lit that up too. He's just got the charisma, whether you like him or not, he's got it. And I was not an active supporter of his in 2016. I, I, I voted for him for reasons I'd happy to tell you the truth about. Didn't have that much to do with him as, as much as it had to do at the time with his opponent. And I'm not asking you to do this so that I can meet him in person. I already know enough. The President of the United States knows who I am. Not because of what I've done, I, but he knows what I have tried to do for Nicholas Sandman, my client, and for a couple of other people that are close friends with him. Herman Cain, a good man. and a couple of others. He knows who I am. I don't need him to recognize to the world. I know Lynn Wood. I want him to give Richard Jewell that medal, not to recognize me, but to recognize Richard. Because under the truth, Richard deserves it. Write him. I know this much about President Trump. He listens. Not necessarily because he has time to listen, but he has some really good advisors and they listen for him. And if you send him that email or you tweet that message or you retweet my message and then together we come together as advocates, you will be joining me in the final portion of the Richard Jewell case. And you will help even if in a small measure for justice to be done.
and truth to surface. Because I believe the president will hear you. And I believe in my heart he will award that medal. And everybody that sent an email and everybody that tweeted support of that idea, you will have been acting as a professional. Thank you. Mr. Wood, we just want to say thank you for coming today. It's been great hearing you speak about your experiences and uh, what professionalism means to you, a legal legend. So we have a crystal gavel here. They told me not to drop it, so I'm going to go ahead and give that to you. <laughs> just thank you for coming. And Am I allowed to use this even at their ages on any of my children? <laughs> Get their attention so there that they listen to me? No requirements on it whatsoever, however you want. I can't, I can't express on the spot how much this really means to me because I wouldn't have time. Thank you very much. Thank you, sir. Please. Uh, yeah, I had seen in the media that there's been some issues in the Sandman case with some of the other students are represented by another Robert. attorney. And I just wondered if you could speak to that, how that relates to professionalism. I'm happy to do so, and I have not had an opportunity to address it candidly. I'm always telling the truth with Robert Barnes, a lawyer, I think out, at least if not in Las Vegas, maybe L.A., I don't know where Robert's based. Robert was a, was a fierce advocate of the Covington Catholic high school students from day one. And I, I was too, but I, my advocacy was on Twitter. I've really advocated hard on Twitter before now, twice, once with respect to Brett Kavanaugh, and I did not like the way that man was treated. He didn't get treated fairly and with respect. And that doesn't mean that his accusers were telling the truth or not. I'm not sure that the people that were dealing with his accusers were, were treating her or them with fairness and respect, but nonetheless, I've watched Robert Barnes on television talking about demanding retractions from everybody. Retract or we'll sue. I didn't know who he represented. I just kind of assumed he represented all of them. But he never identified. And then I got a phone call a couple of days later. In fact, I even sent a direct message to Robert on Twitter, not because I wanted to be involved. I just said, man, I saw you on TV. If there's anything I can do to help you, let me know. I don't need to be involved, but I don't think what was done to those students and that one particular boy was an injustice. And I, am I still on camera? It pisses me off. That's all right. I'm going to tell the truth. And then I got a phone call and, from Todd McMurtry asking me to come represent the family and Nicholas, and I could have said yes. Oh, big news, big case, publicity, maybe a lot of money. I said, I can't do that, Todd, until... I fly up and I meet these people. I gotta see them, I gotta see this young man. I can't just say yes until I find out in my own way of learning what I think I need to know. Is he a good boy? Are they a good family? Do they have a good soul? I'm not judging anybody's soul. That's just my criteria, is I like to assess whether I'm representing a good person and then is it a good cause because I'm going to do what I've urged y'all y'all to do today is to throw your entire life into it. Give them a piece of your life. You do if you really do your job. So you don't give parts of your life away 
foolishly. And I went and met them. And I made the decision that I would be honored to represent them. So I did. But what I also knew was that Robert Barnes didn't represent him. And Nicholas, despite what was done wrong to the other students, and there was a lot to be said about that, how that fits into legal causes of action, I'm not so sure. I have concerns. But I want him to win. Because I know those students were treated unfairly, without respect. And the stories told about him were not the truth. Some of them's faces were part of the crowd around Nicholas. But let's just call it what it is. The person that was most damaged was the boy's face who became the face of evil. Because he had on a red Make America Great Again cap. I guess the media that hates Trump, who's perfectly willing to destroy a man like Brett Kavanaugh, he's collateral damage to their efforts to destroy the president. I never have asked Richard, I've never asked Nicholas if he supported Trump. All I know is he told me he bought the cap that day as a souvenir. Just like a few years earlier when President Obama was president, a lot of the Covington Catholic students that went to the March for Life bought caps as souvenirs on the mall that said hope. That was President Obama's cap. And I think Nicholas was made the face of evil. And I knew that Robert did not represent him. And there have been some things that he has said publicly on Twitter. He blocked me. I wrote him and said, you know, you can't be telling people you... He, he started... He started tweeting things that suggested that we fight, we've sued the Washington Post. I was thinking, well, no, we haven't. What Nicholas Sandman did. You can't be telling people that because it's not the truth. It's not the whole truth. It's not even an accurate truth. It's not right. And he blocked me on Twitter. And it continued to happen. It finally came to a head when he was suggesting that we lost the motion to dismiss to the Washington Post, kind of saying that we didn't know what we were doing, suggesting, I guess, perhaps that he did. I know why I lost the motion to dismiss and the case was dismissed against the Post. I know because the judge got it wrong. And we filed appropriate motions for reconsiderations, set aside the judgment, we amend the complaint, and I went up there and wasn't going to even talk. I was going to let the other lawyer do it. And all of a sudden, I decided in the last 10 minutes when we had rebuttal, I leaned over to Todd McMurtry and I said, I'll take the last 10 minutes, Todd. And I did, off the seat of my pants for 10 minutes. I read the transcript. I wouldn't change a word. And the judge heard me. And he reversed himself on the issue that I argued for 10 minutes. And then Robert Barnes suggested that he we have won against the Washington Post. The motion has been reversed. The order's been reversed. Ah, well, okay. As long as Nichols won, that's okay. But then when we settled the CNN case, I saw another tweet that somebody sent me that suggested that 
Robert was saying, we won against CNN. Well, you know, we won if we are the people. We the people won, but he, the lawyer representing Nicholas Salmon, didn't, didn't win anything. And my concern is that because I have concerns about some of his real clients, I can't allow Nicholas's fate to be tethered to their fate. And I then told him the only way I could, on Twitter first, by letter second, you better stop this now or I'm going to take you to the bar because you are not his lawyer. So that's the story between me and Robert Barnes. And I think Robert and I, just because we have exchanged a couple of emails, I think, you know, truth is sometimes living, I can't live, I don't know his truth. But I, but I will say this, and I want to make it clear. I think his intentions were always good. I think Robert likes publicity. But that's okay. A lot of lawyers do. I, I really don't. But I think his intentions were good. He's certainly on the right side of the issue. So maybe I shouldn't have been so harsh on him. And I think there's a good chance going forward that we will work as professional colleagues a little better together. Anything else about that story I could tell you that I didn't? No, that's basically I really appreciate you asking me that question. I know people say that, like, thanks for that question of the debate guys, the presidents of the women, the women and men on the stage. Well, thank you for that question. It was very good. They didn't really care about the question. They just wanted to tell you the answer they'd already prepared to tell you before you ask them anything. I really appreciate that question because I haven't had a chance to explain that uh, other than to my law partners and to uh, my clients before today. So thank you. Every answer will not be that long. Let me ask one question while he's going to the microphone to get a little into the weeds. Um, I've always heard that part of your secret sauce for success <laughs> sauce. is how you handle depositions. And so for students who are learning to practice law and going out into practice of law. Can you talk about anything particular in the way you approach depositions? How about if I give you the secret sauce in about one or one and a half sentences? But then you gotta go find out the secret sauce that McDonald's uses on the Big Mac because I have to tell you, I love Big Macs even though I try one to eat them occasionally. Uh, the secret sauce is, is not a secret really. It's what I told you today. When I'm taking a witness's deposition, I'm going to go have a conversation with that witness. I know, he's, I know that he or she is adverse to me, but I'm going to go have a conversation with them. And I'm going to have a, a, an informed conversation because I'm going to know the facts of that case. And I'm going to know the law as best I can. And I know the witness is informed because the witness is, that's usually the, mo the sauce is pulled out most often on the opposite party witnesses. And they know their case very well, too. So we're having an informed conversation. I'm going to have an informed conversation with a curious mind. I'm going to listen very carefully to what that witness says. Now, that's not secret. I pretty much said that today. Have an informed conversation in life with a curious mind and listen carefully. And then when you speak, speak the truth. As a lawyer, a professional, speak it with dignity. Sometimes in a deposition... Just like sometimes you get your priorities a little off because you're, we're not perfect people, 
Sometimes people may say over the course of my career that I have gone after a witness in a deposition upon cross-examination in a less than dignified fashion. I probably, well, I have. Because I didn't care at the moment about dignity. I just wasn't going to let go of that witness and let that witness go out of the room telling me a lie. So maybe I wrong his or her neck a little bit in an undignified fashion. I, I'm not sorry for it because usually almost every time the truth comes out. When somebody is adverse to you on the other side, by definition, you're operating under two sets of truth. You got your version of the facts for your client and the other side's got their version of the facts. Well, that's your client's truth. That's their uh, other side's truth. I try as early on in any litigation, any matter, to listen to the other side, to listen to my client, and then I make an objective determination myself of where the truth really lies. It's rarely on one side or the other. It's usually somewhere in between. The cases I take, I try to make sure that the truth of my client is closer to being the truth than it is the other side. Everybody with me so far? And then I apply the rule of logic. If you tell me A and B don't equal A and B, that's not logical, is it? A and B put together always end up being A and B, right? So the answer is illogical. Logic is the best indicator of truth. Illogic if it doesn't tell you in red flashing lights, lie, you can pretty much assume that it does tell you less than the truth. And when I'm faced with a witness that gives me an illogical answer, it tells me that one and one do not equal two, I'm not gonna let go of that witness on cross-examination, which is meant to be thorough and sifting. It's not, you don't walk in and go, sir, tell me, or ma'am, tell me what happened and get it and walk out. Sometimes you've got to thoroughly and siftingly, and it's got to be aggressive within the bounds of professionalism. The search for the truth is rarely easy. So most people that really have to take a deposition as a witness in front with me, I want them to leave the room. If they came in telling less than the truth, I want them to leave the room of one mind only that they just experienced the, one of the worst experiences of their life and they never want to see me again, then I've done my job. One and one always equals two. And within the limitations of time for a deposition, if a witness tells me it doesn't, that witness and I are going to spend a little time in what I guess I've heard other people say, as the woodshed. And now that you've given me this gavel, if I were going to continue to have to deal with some really tough witnesses, there are plenty of them I'd like to take that gavel and whack them on the head and say, tell me the truth or I'm going to hit you again. <laughs> that's, how the, that's the secret sauce, Dean Cox. I'm not sure it's secret. I'm just not sure that every lawyer has thought about it. Because if people thought about it, instead of, as many have, and it's never bothered me, but I know it's there, criticize me for it, if they knew the whole truth, my truth, I think they might say, man, Lynn, that makes a lot of sense. I might start doing that in the future myself. I might not be as animated. I might not be as loud. I might not be as threatening sometimes. You lean over the table at them. 
You don't do this in front of a judge, by the way. You do this in a deposition because in the courtroom, when the jury's there and the judge, you got to present it in a very dignified fashion. You can't be pounding the damn witness over the head and beating up on him or her in front of the jury or they will hate you. And you never want to beat up on a judge. When the judge showed me so disrespect, I didn't get to the point. I responded to that judge, even when he was doing it to my son, who I had asked to help me in that case, 37 years old, practicing law in Austin, Texas, Matt Wood, great guy, going to be a great lawyer. He did it to my son, and it was close. I, I had kind of looked at the judge at occasion, not saying it or showing it to the jury, but I had, I had at least list, looked at him when he was berating me, and I thought that my look, if he interpreted it correctly, would say, I'm not happy with you, Your Honor. But when I was sitting there and my son, Matt, was at the podium asking a legitimate question and the judge started turning on him. We know who the judge liked, by the way. He's a man of, of the future. Or somehow became a man of the future because he sure liked Elon Musk. The evidence in that case was 95% overwhelming and undisputed that Vernon Unsworth should have won. The verdict was spoke the truth of the case but it didn't speak the truth, unless you understand what I've concluded that it did speak the truth, because I think Musk intended it as an insult, but he wrote it as a libel. Hard, hard story for a jury to understand. But the reason, not only was I glad that I got to go play one more game in the tough, you don't, want, you don't want to play your biggest game at home, even though all the fans are there. You want to play your biggest game as a road game when all your fans are not there. That's when you really get your mental tested. And that case gave me a chance to go back, because I hadn't tried a case in 15 years. I used to try them pretty, pretty often. But in the defamation area, I never tried a defamation case. Everybody settled. Or either some judge made a mistake and threw me out. Sometimes they got it right, but I had to do it anyway, because it was the best thing for my client, take a stand. I won because I got to go to the plate and swing the heavy, would one more time in front of an audience in a hostile home, not at home, in front of a hostile judge and a strange uh, eight-person jury. And truth is, in California, if you're suing Elon Musk, the jury comes in hostile toward you because they see him as a legend. Time will tell whether that's true or not. I'll reserve my opinions at this time because there's no need for me to tell you that truth, but I think I know it. I gave that judge a look when he was talking to my son that I will tell you the jury couldn't see, but if the judge could see it, he would have fallen over dead because now my look of disgust at the way he was treating me became a look that if he could have killed him, he was, being look, he was looking at me like he wanted to kill me. Well, I didn't, I've never killed anybody. I never thought about killing anybody. Uh, but I gave him a look, because now it was just not insulting to the profession of law. And a young lawyer, as all my other lawyers are compared to me, they weren't experiencing what they should experience. They should be able to expect from a judge the same thing that they must give to that judge, dignity. They should be treated fairly. They should be treated with respect. You didn't, you're not going through these three years of hell to be treated with disrespect. So, 
I've forgotten the question. But here's the other answer to that particular case. Well, I know what I was saying. In the worst of circumstances, with the worst of judges, if, if, if judges are listening, they know who they are. There's only a few, thank God. And I'm not suggesting that the judge in Musk was the worst of judges. He, for whatever reason, was the worst experience that I can remember in recent years. But then again, I hadn't tried a case in 15 years. Maybe, maybe judges have gotten meaner. I don't know. Or maybe judges are older and they're tired of dealing with it. This judge was uh, 78 years old. I don't know his truth, so I won't comment beyond that. But I do know this. At all times, there's no way you can get around it. You have got to always treat the court with dignity and respect. Because if you don't, the jury will. Because they don't know the judge. They just know that he or she is behind that bench, elevated slightly wearing the black robe and has complete, total authority over that courtroom. The jury is going to respect him in any battle between you and the judge, the jury is going to believe the judge. And if in talking to the judge, you are disrespectful to the judge, they ain't gonna like you. So if I really wanna get the truth and I'm getting it from somebody that's telling me that one and one is three, I can't do it in front of the jury or the judge. I gotta do it in the deposition and do it enough that at least the other lawyers don't stop the deposition and take me before the judge. So I'm always aware when I'm putting the secret sauce together that I got to keep it at a level that doesn't result necessarily in the judge looking at it because the judge would probably look over and say, Mr. Wood, that's not the way you're supposed to act. And I'd probably look over and say, Judge, I agree with you, but that's exactly the way I had to act to get the truth. So there's the secret sauce with a little salt and pepper on it. Another question? Yeah. Thank you, sir. I'm just uh, wondering, in light of the... I like Tiger Woods, by the way. Thank you. He's my I like man. the cap. In light of the recent CNN settlement, there's been some internet speculation, especially on Twitter, of course. Absolutely. As to why CNN settled, I think the main theory being that they don't want to go through the discovery process and have a bunch of internal emails come out, maybe crafting an narrative. No defendant wants to do that. Sure, sure. And I'm just wondering if you think there's any truth to that, and maybe if you can just speak on that a little bit. Well, the answer is truthfully going to be, because I'm only going to tell you the truth, what I said, no defendant, no corporate defendant wants you, the plaintiff, to get into the cookie jar. They don't want you to read the emails. They don't want you to see the text messages. They don't want you to see the WhatsApp messages. They don't sometimes want you to see the real documents, certainly not all the documents. So people that are speculating about CNN, which I will not comment directly on because I cannot, only to the extent that I've agreed that the settlement would be confidential as to amount. I'm free to discuss it otherwise. Uh, that's not the answer in my view. And remember I just, I said, in my view, I don't know why CNN settled. As a matter of fact, only CNN knows the truth of its life corporately, just like only I know the truth of my life individually. I think I know enough of the truth of CNN's life, the part that I've been exposed to. This is not my first rodeo with CNN. I've settled, I settled a case with them for Richard Jewell and I've settled another case. And I got another case pending that I, I hope some, one day soon everybody will be fair and reasonable and it'll get settled because that's what settlements are. People treating each other with fairness and respect. That's why a settlement can get justice. 
just like you get justice in a court of law because a court of law is supposed to treat you fairly and with respect. That's the definition of justice. It's not, I won, I'm innocent. That's not justice always. It may not be justice at all. Was it justice when O.J. Simpson walked out an innocent man? You decide. Justice does not deliver or found, it's not found in the outcome. It's found in the process. Remember what I said about looking yourself in the mirror? Even when you lost a case, you felt like you should have won. You're going to go do it another day because you respected the fact that you went through the process and you gave it the best that you could. Justice is found and exists by a system, by settlement or verdict or motion that treats everyone fairly and with justice with respect. So, I am comfortable telling you that I can't tell you the amount because I agreed not to. And I can't even discuss how the subject matter came up. I'm just telling you that it's settled for a confidential amount. And I can tell you this about the amount. Put this on the nightly news. It's not going to be what you want. But it's all you need to hear. If you believe that for 43 years, Lynn Wood, some call legend, some call other things when they see my secret sauce, and it's not always legend, do you think I would represent somebody so that one side got treated unfairly with a result that did not show respect to both sides? Here's what I can tell you about the amount of the settlement in CNN. Lynn Wood, the lawyer who stood and fought all of his life, not for money or fame, I don't mind telling you that truth, it's the truth. I believe that settlement was a fair treatment by the parties of each other and reflected a respect on the part of each party toward each other. And that's exactly what a settlement needs to be. That's the amount any settlement needs to be. So here's the amount of the settlement if you're looking. It was not too much. And it was not too little. It was enough so that truth and justice prevailed. Short of the cost and the expense and the discovery and all the things that go on, the publicity in this type of a case, that CNN and the Washington Post and NBC and all the other folks have got to try to figure out whether they're going to willing to do it or not, it's going to end up, in my view, the same result, by settlement or by verdict. Because I believe the truth of Nicholas Sandsman's case is that CNN settled and it was a smart thing to do. Washington Post ought to settle if they're smart. NBC ought to settle if they're smart. Gannett ought to settle if they're smart, and all the other people that accuse this boy falsely of racist misconduct on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial at the National Mall on January the 18th of 2018. They ought to all settle. Because I got news for them. As long as I got a little fight left in me, I'm going to fight for the same thing for Nicholas. I fought for every other client in 43 years of my career. I'm going to fight for that truth to be exposed, and I'm going to fight for justice to be done, for my client to be treated fairly and with respect. 
and every bone in my professional body, the fiber of my body, tells me that you got one choice, member of the media, that falsely accused this boy. You can sit down and you can settle this with me, or one day it will be settled by a jury. And I'm sure CNN knows and the Washington Post knows and NBC knows and Gannett knows the jury in that case will be a jury in Covington, Kentucky. Covington, Kentucky, where Nicholas Sandman has lived all of his life. Where approximately 80% of the jury pool it's Catholic. And that much or slightly higher, maybe upwards of closer to 90%, but at least 80%, support President Trump. Get your justice by settlement, CNN or somebody else, or your judgment day will come soon enough in Covington, Kentucky. Did that answer your question? Yes, sir. Thank you. <laughs> I hope they're listening. They need to listen to me carefully because I'm telling them the truth. One more question for me. You bet. Anything? Yeah. Yeah. So if I might, um, this is Professor Jeremy Kidd. Good to meet you. Professor, nice to see you. Um, Thank you a, for what you do. Thank you. Uh, I was at a conference about two, three weeks ago. It was a big law professor's conference, and they were all talking about Justice Thomas's recent, um, <laughs> I think it was in his concurrence to a denial of cert, but he talked about it might be might be time to rethink uh, New York Times v. Sullivan. And the professors who were on the panel were uniformly outraged and appalled by even the suggestion. Um, but I thought... Uh, ask me where I think of it. I was going to ask you what you thought of it. I knew you were. I'm trying to listen and not interrupt, because then I wouldn't be listening carefully, but I knew what you were really going. Here is my view of what Justice Thomas said. He's absolutely right. He's absolutely right. What's happened under New York Times versus Sullivan, it has essentially given the media a blank check to report falsehoods negligently, sloppily, because they know that the chances of somebody, someone being able to prove by a clear and convincing standard of proof versus preponderance that they actually knew it was false when they published it. Well, good luck on that. I've only had two people in my 43 years that I got them to admit it. I had to apply a lot of the, of the secret sauce <laughs> where they admitted they published something they knew that was false before they published it and when they published it. Or you got to prove that they published it with a reckless disregard for truth or falsity, which the law has very conveniently defined, and properly so if you buy into the actual malice standard, as proof circumstantially that the publisher's mindset was that he or she knew it was probably false. That's a hell of a burden. And I will say, without any equivocation, that I'm probably the lawyer that has achieved more favorable results for public figures despite that burden, at present at least, in, that exists in the United States of America. So I know New York Times versus Sullivan. I will tell you I know New York Times versus Sullivan, and New York Times versus Sullivan is not a friend of mine. 
But that's not why I give you my reaction. It's not because of what it's impacted on my clients. I think it is not the law under the Constitution. I think that for very, very good reasons, in 1964, the ruling in New York Times versus Sullivan was right and is totally understandable, even though I find that it has no basis in constitutional law. They made it up. If you can find where it says anything about actual malice or public and private figures in the Constitution, write me as quick as you can and I'll stop making a total idiot out of myself uh, because I don't find it in there. New York Times versus Sullivan was not a case that the media needed to have decided. The media before 1964, when they were held to a higher standard, which Gertz versus Robert Welch said you're not going to be allowed to do for certain with private figures when they sharply defined uh, a limited purpose public figure, but reiterated the right of private individuals to sue under any standards the state had set forth, usually negligence. But Gert said you can't do it by strict liability. You can't just go walk in and prove false and then be found liable. Because here's what was happening in the years right around 1964, the Civil Rights Movement. I was 12 years old, and probably so my real realization of firsthand raw knowledge of the Civil Rights Movement was probably around age 7 or 8 to age 12 by the time New York Times versus Sullivan was uh, set forth and enunciated by the Supreme Court of this country. I had seen at the drugstore the signs that said colored, showed you where the bathrooms were. I'd been to courthouses, even today, built in cities in the south, in the center of the town hall square, where their steps go down where they used to be African-Americans' bathrooms. They couldn't go inside. So. What New York Times versus Sullivan did was a noble and necessary thing because what was happening is the media, which is really, I think, only has one legitimate purpose, and that is to serve as the watchdog of, over government, not to go out and start branding people, individuals, of whether they're good or bad and attack their reputations. They're supposed to be the watchdog of government. And with respect to the Civil Rights Movement in the South, they couldn't do it because if they said something about the local sheriff or the local mayor, that mayor would sue them for libel. And they would, under a strict liability standard, if the jury found it false, they would get hit for potentially a lot of money. The juries were all white. Who you think is going to win? How many times is the media going to be able to write the truth about what that official is doing if they're going to be sued and potentially put out of business? New York Times versus Sullivan was, in my view, an effort by the United States Supreme Court to provide to the civil rights movement another weapon by allowing the media to go after the truth of the discrimination and the injustices that were being inflicted around this country, particularly in the South, to try to stop it. And the media, with all of their wisdom and all of their money and all of their smart lawyers, they took New York Times versus Sullivan, not for what it was necessarily worth, because 
the, the worlds that existed, the skies had not fallen before 1964. The media was still able to do, except in the certain circumstances I've described, they were able to do their job. Then the, then the Supreme Court came along and said, well, there's a deal down here where they said that the Georgia coach and Alabama coach fixed a game, and there was another similar issue of two prominent people, uh, a person named Curtis, and I think it was Wilkes and Curtis Publishing. And the decision came out that said, oh, we're going to take the public official standard of New York Times. Remember, New York Times versus Sullivan only applied to public officials. That's all it needed to apply to. That was enough. Anything else would be too much. And they're working off of nothing now. They've made up the law, and I think it could have been done by statute. It should not have been done as an interpretation of the Constitution because it's not there. They extended it to public figures. So if you were an individual that had a general notoriety in the community around, an actor, an athlete, a movie, you know, whatever, you, you, you were a public figure and you had to meet the same standard of actual malice by clear and convincing evidence. And then those same media defendants who are claiming to be working to protect the First Amendment don't buy that. I know them. They're great lawyers. They're brilliant. They got the law on their side, and they got the money. P pocketbooks, on, let me tell you, NBC, there's no budget. And they say there's no budget because we're fighting for the First Amendment. Are they fighting for the First Amendment, or are they fighting to protect the power and money of the media companies they represent? I suggest the latter. And they got it so far down the line that in Rosenblum versus Metro Media, the Supreme Court of the United States said that if you, a private figure, you find yourself caught up in a matter of public interest, public controversy, media doesn't report generally on things that don't interest the public. You're going to be a public figure, and you're going to see your life destroyed by negligent, sloppy, false reporting and you can sue, but you got to prove actual malice. Good luck. I'm not picking on you. You just look like a guy that would be a good plaintiff in a case like that. Because <laughs> you got an honest face, and I bet you you got an honest soul. But only you know your truth. I don't. The Supreme Court said everybody, it's a basic thing, everybody's got to do it. And then quickly, Gertz versus Robert Welch came along, and the Supreme Court said, whoa, 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 that was too much. And they backed it back down and said they overruled themselves. And for the Supreme Court to overrule itself within a matter of just a few short years, you better pay attention because they're telling you that the highest law, the people that were the highest authority of law in this country just got this wrong. <laughs> pay attention. And they come up, came up with, again, if you can find it in the United States Constitution, a basis for it, I'll be glad to listen, but they came up with, well, no, a private figure gets to still be a private figure unless that person voluntarily interjects himself or herself into a public controversy, the vortex of it, the forefront of it, with an intent to influence the outcome. Wow. That's what they said Richard Jewell was, a limited-purpose public figure, except in a footnote, this is how good the media defense lawyers are and how they train the judges because people like me we can't afford to put on the seminars on the First Amendment and tell the judges the truth. 
they had a footnote that said, and I can almost quote it, hypothetically, in some instances, a private figure could become, could become an involuntary public figure. But such instances would be, quote unquote, exceedingly rare. Footnote in Gertz. And Professor, do you teach constitutional law? If you have one of your colleagues that does, go get them to pull Gertz versus Robert Welch and ask him if Lynn Wood has told them the truth about that footnote. I think I quoted that footnote almost verbatim. So, Judge Mather, state court judge, found that Richard Jewell was a limited purpose public figure because he'd given eight or nine interviews, asked to participate in it by AT&T, his employer who wanted some good publicity by him going out and giving interviews as the hero guard. He didn't care about being on TV because they were getting such a black eye off the fact the bomb occurred in AT&T Park. And Richard did. And we want people like Richard Jewell. We want people like everybody in this room. If you are a witness to a public event of public interest, how are we gonna know about it? If the media is not there, and they most of the times are not, but they were there that day in the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, weren't they? The cameras were rolling, weren't they? The truth was captured because the eye does not lie. So that's why I have confidence, by the way, in the Nicholas Salmon cases because I heard the Washington Post lawyer, great lawyer, Kevin Bain, Williams and Connolly, one of the premier law firms in the country, tell Judge Bertelsman, we may need to take 50 or 80 fact witnesses, Judge, depositions. This is going to be long. It's going to be complicated. And I'm sitting over here thinking, excuse me? You're going to bring 50, 80 witnesses? There were so many people there, Judge, there's going to be a lot of witnesses, a lot of depositions, a lot of expense, a lot of delay. And I'm sitting there thinking, I don't understand that. That's not logical. Because I know that if you brought 80 people in that watched the same event, you're going to get slightly 80 different stories about the truth as they perceived it, because they perceived the truth through the, the lenses of their own truths of their lives. So people see it in a way that is prejudiced to some extent and distorted to some extent by their own life. Why do you need all those people to come in and tell us what happened? <laughs> it was captured on video. All we need to do is look at the video, which is the whole problem with what they did to Nicholas Salmon, is they didn't bother to look at the video and they would have never written what they read, wrote about him, that he tried to go around and block the Native Americans' exit from a crowd that was possibly jeering at him, which they weren't, but they could have been, so maybe. And because of that, he was he had engaged in a, a racist act. If you go out and, and you do that, no matter what color cap you're wearing, you can wear the Tiger Woods cap. You could wear Legends of Mercer cap. If you go out and you stand in front of a minority person who is arguably surrounded by people that are mocking him, if you walk around and block that person's ability to get out, to exit, which is what they said Nicholas Salmon did, that is a racist act. It is an act of racial misconduct designed to keep somebody like Nathan Phillips caught up in the crowd. And it doesn't matter what kind of cap you're wearing. 
If that's the truth and you did that, then the truth is you've engaged in an act of racial, racist misconduct. Nicholas didn't do that. The video shows he never moved. He looked over at one point in time when a friend of his was about to lip off to somebody that was with Nathan Phillips, and they were there as activists. They wanted trouble. They wanted a video for their own purposes because they're the ones in part of the video, as did the uh, black uh, Hebrew, uh, Hebrew Israelites or whatever that group was that really did spew racist venom toward these boys. Nicholas looked over and said, that's all he did. So him to be quiet. That's, he actually did this. He went, cut it. And he stood in front of Nathan Phillips and showed him the respect of quiet, tried to put on a pleasant face and smile, not out of disrespect, the mock of the boy. God. And Nicholas Salmon is a fine young man. He wants to be a lawyer. I hope he doesn't change his mind. We know what the truth is because we saw it on the video. We don't need 80 or nothing. Why do they want all those witnesses? Because that makes it harder for them to, to be held accountable for what they did wrong. They rushed out and published those lies about this boy without bothering to look at the videotape where the truth was easily found. There were people that had posted videos of it all up and down the Internet. All you had to do was spend an hour or less to see that Nicholas Salmon didn't do anything to confront Nathan Phillips. Instead, he was confronted, and he never made a move to block Nathan Phillips' exit. Why in the world wouldn't the media, why wouldn't the Washington Post, why wouldn't CNN, why wouldn't NBC, why wouldn't Gannett, why wouldn't all these people take just a few minutes to find the easy truth before they would attack falsely a 16-year-old child, in my view, because you're not an adult at least until you get 18. Sometimes you're not that at 18. But as a parent, you're just damn glad when they are that, at least before 33. I'm proud of you. 34. 34. <laughs> Somebody give her the gavel and let her hit me on the head. Hit me twice. I'm 67. My mind's not as good as it used to be. I'm too long with this story, but this story is very important. Because you are videoing this, aren't you, Dean Cox? This is an important story. Why didn't they do it? Let me just ask you this. Does anybody now, based on what you've heard me say today, without telling me what you think, do you have an answer to that question? If you do, raise your hand. I'm not going to ask you to tell me your truth. I'll tell you mine. Because he's wearing a Make America Great Again cap. And they did to Nicholas what they were perfectly willing to do with a man of impeccable character his entire adult life. I bet Brett Kavanaugh was a hellraiser when he was in high school and college, but he couldn't say it because he wanted to be on the Supreme Court and under the atmosphere if he had said the truth completely. I don't think he lied. He just didn't tell the whole truth because he wanted something. He wanted to be on the Supreme Court. And they went after that man and accused him of gang rape, of some of the most heinous of conduct because they weren't after Brett Kavanaugh. They were after Donald Trump. Brett Kavanaugh was collateral damage. Nicholas Sandman was collateral damage. They didn't care about Nicholas Sandman because they viewed him as a supporter of Donald Trump because he was wearing a MAGA cap. 
not even knowing if he supported Donald Trump, and not even knowing the truth that he bought it that day on the mall as a souvenir, as did some of the other students. They didn't go there on a march for Donald Trump. They went there out of their religious beliefs that they were marching for life. But they couldn't wait to go get him because he was within what Hillary Clinton, and that's not political for me. Not at all. I just, I'm, I'm telling you the truth of what I would tell any jury. It has nothing to do with my politics. It's just the truth. They went after him because they viewed him as they view every other Trump supporter as essentially a deplorable. We ain't got to worry about this 16-year-old deplorable. Let's get Trump. Go get him. Don't worry about looking at the video. Put it out there because it's a hell of a story. It looks like a white 16-year-old boy wearing a MAGA cap who loves Donald Trump has just abused a Native American. And Nathan Phillips, when he gave his interviews, he lied about it. He lied. But the same truth that's going to catch up with the media that didn't look at the tape going to catch up with Nathan Phillips because it's going to show through the videotape, not 80 witnesses, the video in real time is going to show that Nathan Phillips was a liar. But I can't even begin to tell you how many times CNN and NBC and the Washington Post interviewed him, the Detroit Free Press interviewed him. Everybody was interviewing him. Everybody was letting him tell his lies. Republication. They're liable for that false republication. Tailbearer is as liable as the tail maker. That's a quote from the law. I know a little of it. So, I think that they're all in trouble. And I think they all ought to be in trouble. And it doesn't have a thing to do with who I'm going to vote for or support for president. The only thing that matters to me is truth and justice. So, back to the, the question. I apologize for the journey longer than it was expected. We took a side, side road. But we ended up back to the, to the question and the truth of, as I can answer it. The media is now trying to say that everybody, if they can't prove what people are beginning like me, like Vernon Unsworth, they tried to say Vernon was a public figure. A limited purpose public figure because he gave an interview and a CNN person asked him, "What's your opinion of Must Too?" And he told him the truth in British style. And he ought to stick it up his stick it where it hurts. You know what that is? Everybody said he's personally attacked Elon. Elon should never allow that. He should go get him. That wasn't a personal attack. Even Elon Musk admitted it was an idiomatic phrase that everybody knows is figurative and not literal, and it means that he was calling bullshit on the tube that he had invented to bring over there in three days that was never under God's earth going to be used. You're never going to send a little mini-sub in there into that cave untested, not knowing whether it was safe or not, when for sure by the time it got there, Eight of the boys had already been safely rescued by the heroism. And I mean real heroism. Vernon Runsworth would be the first to tell you. The real heroes were the divers that came over from Britain, the expert cave divers who couldn't have gotten over there without Vern telling the Thai authorities about it. 
and working with the British authorities to get them permission from their diving association to come there. I met those three men, two of them. They are heroes. They swam underwater in a cave in the dark where you could not see six inches in front of you. And they went all the way there. And then one at a time, they brought those boys out back through that same treacherous path except when they brought them out they had to keep close observations to make sure that the boys were okay because some of them couldn't swim all of them were starving some of them is small enough they worried that the mask might get water through it they had to sedate them they didn't want to over sedate them so they had to take a second rescue diver with them that entire trip there and back to monitor the child if necessary to inject a little more sedation I told the jury in that case, and I thought it was the best closing argument I ever gave. I told the jury in that case that if I ever find myself almost two miles deep into a cave of which very few people are familiar, Vernon's the most familiar person in the world with that cave. He mapped much of it. That's why he's a hero. He told them where to go look, where he thought they could only be. They weren't there the first place. They were there the second. Vernon told them, you got to take this much rope to get there, and you got to have this much oxygen to get there and back. Vernon made him, gave him the ability, because of his knowledge of the cave, to search. And when you search, you find. And they found him. Pretty much where Vernon said he thought they would be found if they were still alive. Vernon Unsworth is a hero in my view. But he's not the hero that Rick Stanton, for example, was, who actually went in and brought him out I think the first time they brought the first four boys out, it was taking them about three hours underwater. By the time they got the final four of the boys out, the 13th was the coach, it was taking them, I think, closer to an hour and a half. They got better as they did it. They got more familiar with the journey. They had seen other reactions of the children, so they were able to do it quicker. And let me tell you, those boys needed to get out probably the day they realized they were lost because they were dying. Nobody gave those boys a chance. I don't care about your religious faith. That's your life. And I'm not expressing my religious faith because it's not a subject matter today that you need to hear the truth about. But if it ever was, I'd tell you. But I'll tell you one thing. The fact that all 12 of those boys and that coach got out of that alive after being there for over three weeks total, several days before they were discovered missing, and then they had to find them after they assembled the people. The fact that every one of those children and that coach came out alive, I will tell you, and I would swear to it under oath, under penalty of perjury, was a miracle. You decide whose miracle. That's your choice. But I told that jury, if I ever found myself in that cave, or any cave where it's underwater, two miles or more in, in the dark, and I'm underwater and barely can see. These boys were on water and were on the land right there by it. It's like a beach area. But to make the figurative example, I said if I'm ever in that situation and I look up, I want to see the faces of Vernon Unsworth and Rick Stanton. I do not want to be in that situation and look up and see the face of Elon Musk. That's the end of my story. They need to, they've got to figure out a way, Professor, 
because they're trying to say everybody's now an involuntary public figure. And some judges, including in the Jewell case, say he's either a limited purpose or he's involuntary. If, you, if, you, if the classification of involuntary public figure does in fact exist in the Gertz case, then I would look at the members of the Supreme Court, if I could, with respect, and say, well, then what the hell did you reverse Rosenblum versus Metro Media for? Because if you're an involuntary public figure, you're the same person they said was too much in Rosenblum versus Metro Media. They've taken that footnote, the media defendants, and they've converted it back into, in effect, reinstating Rosenblum versus Metro Media. The law in the area has got to change. Whether it means to do away with New York Times versus Sullivan and, and enact its protections another way by statute, or maybe if it just means to leave it like it is as to public officials, where I can understand it, the media's got to have a lot more room to be wrong about public officials. They've got to have more breathing space because they've got to monitor what the officials of government are doing. They don't need that same breathing space when it comes to private individuals. So somehow, either constitutionally or otherwise, Justice Roberts is right. Ju Justice Thomas. I don't know if Justice Tom, uh, I don't know if the uh, Chief Justice will get it right or not, but Thomas is right. So we got, they got to revisit New York Times versus Sullivan and make sure that what it was intended to do can still be done, but do away with what it was never intended to do. It's not necessary to do that to protect the cherished right of freedom of speech and freedom of press in this country. It is simply not, and I defy anybody to tell me otherwise. And I have them telling me that every day when the media defendants get in front of the judges. Judge, you've got to give us that breathing space or we're going to have a collapse of the First Amendment. If the First Amendment collapses society as we know it will collapse. And I'm sitting there going, I've never heard such whore stuff in my life. You just want the breathing space because you want to make the money and you want to get the power. Look at who owns the media. It ain't Ted Turner anymore. These are large, billion, multi-billion dollar multinational conglomerates. They want money and they want power. They want money because money gets power. They want influence because influence is power. We got to fix that. I don't know if I'm going to live long enough to do it. But every opportunity I've had over the last, I've been doing the media law since 1996, so 24 years, everything I've done has been aimed always at trying to get something changed because I don't think our system right now has it right. And if it's not right, then it needs to be changed. Clarence Thomas is right. I don't know if he's defined how he wants to change it, but he's right, it needs to be changed. Sorry for the long answer. Thank you.